Our scripture lesson tonight comes from the book of Judges, chapter 1. Judges, chapter 1, hear now the word of the Lord. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated ten thousand of them at Bezek. They found Adoni Bezek at Bezek, and fought against him, and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adoni Bezek fled, but they pursued him, and caught him, and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adoni Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negev, and in the, the Boland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Sheshai and Achiman and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Otniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, and he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field, and she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing, since you have set me in the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad, and they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephthath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem, so the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beit Shean and its villages, or Ta'anak and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibleam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalol, so the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. 
Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Achlab or of Akzib or of Helba or of Afik or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beit Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beit Anat, so they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beit Shemesh and of Beit Anat became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Heres, in Aijalom, and in Shaobim. But the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah and upward. This is the word of the Lord. In the, in the book of Joshua, the, the people of Judah and the, and the people of Joseph were the two tribes that went out and took possession of their inheritance. And in a, in a, in a sense, you see that same pattern continuing in the book of Judges. Uh, to a certain extent, I think what we're, what we're reading here in the first chapter of Judges is, is sort of a summary of what we heard in the book of Joshua as to the various uh, successes and failures of the tribes. But there's something of a twist that Judges puts on the story because Judges is going to take us down a trail here. Uh, now, some scholars think this is just reading backwards from the division of the kingdom. Ah, Judah and Joseph, these, are, these become the, the sort of the two leaders of the tribes of, of Judah and Benjamin on one side, the ten tribes with Joseph in the lead. But it's, it's, it's not just reading history backwards. I mean, think about it, th- think about it this way. How does the story of American history get told? You tell, you tell the story of American history from the Revolutionary War to the Civil War, and I mean, we tend to put a really high, high premium on the story of slavery and how slavery led to the divisions that led to the Civil War. And you could say, oh, that's just reading backwards. Well, it's, as I read the old school Presbyterian newspapers from 1837 to 1861, and now as I've been reading through the Breckenridge correspondence from the 1820s to the 1860s, it's not just hindsight talking. This is, you know, Charles Hodge wrote in 1831 that if the United States couldn't solve the slavery problem, there was going to be a war. Well, that was 30 years before the war happened. Already people were saying, if we don't figure this out, there's going to be a war. And in the same way that in the book of, uh, book of Judges, the way that Judah and Joseph are portrayed as, as the leaders of Israel doesn't just mean they're, oh, projecting backwards. It rather shows, as we saw in the book of Joshua, uh, Judah and Joseph were the leaders because Caleb had identified with Judah and Joshua was from Ephraim. And so the two spies that were most believing of God's promises happened to come from the two tribes that were most active in taking possession of the land because when your leaders believe God's promises, not surprisingly, you tend to act on God's promises. And when your leaders don't believe God's promises, not surprisingly, you don't act like God's promises are going to be much. Now, that may seem obvious, but it bears repeating. When your leaders believe God's promises and act accordingly, you generally do better than when they don't. It's something that's always worthwhile for leaders to hear. When you're in a position of leadership, whether it's in the church or in your home or in your work or whatever, if you believe God's promises and act upon those promises, it will be better for those who are under your care. 
Now, the book of Judges will have a lot to say on this topic. Uh, the, the book of Judges is, has a lot to say about, about leadership. Uh, if, if Joshua shows us the, the coming of, of God's anointed conqueror who went before his people and caused Israel to inherit the land, well, Judges shows the need for a king who will reign forever. Because as, as the book of Judges points out, you know, like, well, first of all, Joshua died and stayed dead. And then the, the, a generation passes and then Israel falls. And we'll see this pattern repeating in Judges over and over again. As long as you have a good leader, things are going well, but then the leader dies and then things fall apart. We need a leader who will live forever so that we will never forget. But the, uh, the book of Judges is not only about a leader in general. Judges is all about a sort, particular sort of leader. This leader should come from the tribe of Judah. Because when, when the people of Israel inquire of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord says, Judah shall go first. This will be a theme that we'll see uh, that what sort of leader do we need? Right up front, chapter 1, we need a leader from Judah. And as we see at the end of the book, we'll need a leader from Bethlehem, not from Gibeah. And in case your Old Testament history is a little bit murky, Saul is from Gibeah and David is from Bethlehem. So if the last story of the book is going to highlight Gibeah, Saul's hometown, Bethlehem, David's hometown, and the, the refrain at the end of the book is, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did was right in his own eyes. Oh, maybe this book is ultimately all about how we need a king from Bethlehem. And I realize, we're, start, we're doing this the wrong time of year. Uh, <laughs> the last time I preached on Judges, I did it as, we started it as an Advent series, because really, uh, Judges is all about Christmas. I mean, it's one of those one of those questions that I, I like to, uh, you know, I like to you know, ask ask of of sort of, of of candidates for the ministry. How would you preach the, the Christmas message? How, how is Judges all about Christmas? And at first they're sort of like, huh? But Judges is all about Christmas. We need a king from Bethlehem, and a, a king who will lead us to do what is right in God's eyes, not in our own eyes. Now. Judges has sort of a, a double introduction. Uh, chapter 1 connects Judges back towards the narrative of Joshua. Chapter 2 will then set forth the central pattern for the book of Judges. Uh, judges will also have two conclusions, uh, two stories at the end of the book that illustrate the problems of the era. But our, our text begins with, the, 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 in a sense, the problem after the death of Joshua. Uh, after the death of Joshua, who is supposed to lead Israel? Uh, the book of Joshua had opened with after the death of Moses. Well, after the death of Moses, God had already appointed who the leader was supposed to be. Back in Deuteronomy, God had said Joshua was supposed to be the one who would take over for Moses. But when Joshua dies, who's supposed to take over? Who is supposed to go before Israel and defeat their enemies? So what, is supposed, what are they supposed to do? Who shall go before them in battle? And so... Now, the book starts well, because the people come to God and say, what should we do? Who should go first? 
So the book of Judges will have a few shining moments. This is one of them. They come to the Lord and inquire of the Lord. Uh, Israel desires to follow God's will, so they come and ask, how shall we defeat the Canaanite? So they, they would have come, the, the Ark of the Covenant, um, they would have come to the priests, and, uh, and God had determined uh, the, the use of, of Urim and Thumim, a, sort of a form of casting lots, as the way of, of ascertaining what is the will of the Lord. Uh, so probably the way, you know, when that when says, um, the, the, basically the Lord said, Judah shall go first, um, the way the way this this is often done is sort of it's it's in a yes or no for, form you might say because what, is it if, is it urim or thumim so probably it's you know, shall Reuben go first no shall Simeon go first no so shall, shall Judah go first yes ah okay Judah shall go first that, that's probably probably something like the way that it would have been it would have been done so Israel is seeking the will of the Lord and they're doing what God says. The, remember, these are the elders who have lived through the conquest. They remembered the mighty works of the Lord under Joshua. But now the, these elders are beginning to get old and to die off. And judges will narrate a very different story from Joshua. Under, under Joshua, Israel acted together. Under Joshua, one could speak of the nation of Israel. But after the death of Joshua... Is there really a nation of Israel? You have the twelve tribes, and, and, and at the end of Joshua, we heard you know, they, were, they were concerned that there was going to be fragmentation. They understood that was a real temptation, a real danger, that over time they'll forget. And that's why they built Ed, the altar of witness, to say, we need to remember that we are one people, that the Lord is our God. But they don't do very well at that. I mean, in one sense, the priesthood, should you know the Levites scattered through all the tribes is supposed to unite the nation, um, but the Book of Judges is going to show a certain fragmentation, that the various tribes will do their own thing, and without a king, Israel is often more of a, a memory and a goal than a present reality. Which it's worth it's worth seeing the connections there. Because when you think about the Church of Jesus Christ today, we, we say, we, we believe one holy Catholic and apostolic church. That's almost more of a, a memory and a goal than a present reality. When you, when you look around and say, where is the church? Very often the visible church Catholic is not very visible. It's really hard to see sometimes. How is the church one? How is the church united? Not very well. It's more of a memory and a goal than a present reality. But when the people of Israel inquire, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanite, God's answer is clear. Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And this is where, throughout the book of Judges, we'll see that the names are important, the tribes, the geography, and all of which points to the primacy of Judah. Judah shall go up. Judah shall go first. And then the rest of this first section in chapter 1 highlights everyone who went with Judah. First, Simeon goes with Judah. We, we heard in Joshua how Simeon had been given an inheritance within the bounds of Judah. And true to what Jacob had said, uh, 
Simeon was folded into Judah and never really had a separate identity again. And most of, most of chapter 1 follows simple, uh, sort of a chronicle format, a narrative of facts. But this narrative is broken up by three detailed stories that recount particular episodes in the midst of the chronicle. And the first is the account of Adonibezek near Jerusalem. In verses 5 to 7, we hear of the, the capture of, of the Lord of Bezek, Adonibezek. And they've, they've struck down 10,000 men at Bezek, and Judah captures the Lord of Bezek and brings him to justice. And they, they cut off his thumbs and big toes. Um, if, you, if you think about it, thumbs and big toes are rather important for most anything you do in life. Without thumbs, you can't really wield a sword. <laughs> Without big toes, you can't really walk. So you're not going to be much use in battle without thumbs or big toes. And then Judges tells us what he said, which is rare. We very rarely hear the voice of pagans in the book of Judges. But here, the Lord of Bezek says, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. Adonai Bezek sees the, the justice, the retribution of God in the work of Israel. And it, you could sort of see how Adonai Bezek had apparently been something of a thug in Canaan. Um, we, we see, maybe, when we think of kings, we tend to think of large territories. Obviously, if he had 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off, uh, these would be like 70 mayors, uh, if you want a parallel. I mean, each of these kings would have been kings of a particular town, not of some large country. Um, so these are, these are chieftains of villages, maybe with a few hundred warriors. Uh, but, but then Adonai Bezek explains this action. God has done this to me, as I have done, so God has repaid me. In all three of these little vignettes, foreigners play central roles. And here we see the importance of the move from Bezek to Jerusalem in this story. Now, Jerusalem, I'm sure you know about, city of David. Bezek, anybody got Bezek? <laughs> uh, Bezek is only one other place, it appears. It's the place where King Saul gathered Israel together for his first kingly act in the rescue of Jabesh Gilead. Now, the book of Judges is going to make constant references to Things that happen in Saul's reign and occasionally some things that happen in David's reign too. A lot of geographic references, a lot of symbolic pictorial connections. And so when you start seeing them, you start saying, oh, this story moves from Bezek, Saul's first story, to Jerusalem, David's sort of great story. So Judah's first triumph is over the first city where Saul assembled all Israel. Coincidence? Not likely. And then they bring him to Jerusalem, and he dies there. Jerusalem, which would one day be the city of David. Uh, I should also mention, at Bezek, uh, Saul had cut an oxen into 12 pieces and sent one piece to each tribe, summoning them to Bezek. And at the end of the book of Judges, that episode will again be recalled in the final story. So, um, So this is... This is a picture, it's, it's connecting us to the Saul-David story. Um, but it's, it's also worth noting that he dies at Jerusalem. Um, that it's, no, it's curious, perhaps, that it doesn't say he was put to death, but rather 
he dies in Jerusalem. And he says, as I have done, so God has repaid me. He recognizes that his own sin, his own deeds have come back upon his own head. It's worth noting that God will reward each one according to his deeds. When we're feeling particularly aggrieved by others, we sometimes get encouraged by this. Ah, God will reward them according to their deeds. So and so will get what's coming. Uh, But of course, when we start thinking too much like that, we start realizing, wait a second, when we see our own sin for what it is, we start saying, oh, each one will be rewarded according to his deeds. Uh, Well, the book of Judges will keep getting scarier and scarier as we keep going because Israel will become more and more like Adonai Bezek. Israel will become more and more like the Canaanites. Indeed, by the end of the book, the, you know, it's clear, not only has Israel become like the Canaanites, Israel has become like Sodom and Gomorrah. So it's just, it's a, sort of, this story is spiraling down. So if each will be rewarded according to their deeds, when Adonai Bezek's op- this sort of, this, this opening line, as it were, that says, sort of, ah, what is God doing here? He is bringing justice. He is rewarding each according to their deeds. That might sound, oh good, our enemies are going to get destroyed. Oh, but then we wind up like them. We may need a king who will help us to do what is right in God's eyes and not just do what is right in our own eyes. So now, uh, verse 8 tells us that we should not take Judges 1 in strict chronological order. I mean, they brought Adam the Bezek to Jerusalem, and he died. And then we're told that the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it. So probably they actually fought this battle before they fought against Adam the Bezek. But our author wants us to see this, the Bezek story first in order to make this connection with Saul and David. And now, uh, and now we're told that, that Judah fought against Jerusalem, captured it, struck it with the edge of the sword, and set the city on fire. Now, notice that Judah does not inhabit the city. We'll, we'll see this because there's several references to Jerusalem in our, in our text. And so Judah captured the city, they burned the city, then they left it behind. Um, Judah has no time to occupy the city. They go on to fight against the Canaanites in the hill country, the Negev and the lowland, and so they leave it behind. And as we'll hear the Jebusites come back, they re-inhabit the city before Benjamin comes around and then fails to take the city. Um, so uh, the, the campaign in the hill country is introduced in verse 10 with, with Hebron. In Joshua, we were told that, that Caleb went against Hebron. Here we're just told that Judah as a whole goes against Hebron. And the point is actually to connect the work of Judah with the work of Caleb. In verse 20, it'll, it'll be made clear that Caleb was the one who drove out Sheshai, Achiman, and Talmai, the three sons of Anak. Um, but this is the way that the story is told, is connecting Caleb and his mighty deeds with Judah in order to exalt Judah going first. And it's worth remembering that Hebron was the place where Abraham had bought a burial plot. Uh, Hebron would also be the place where David would establish his first capital before Jerusalem. Now, this, the, second, the second little in, sort of story is found in verses 11 to 15 with Otniel's capture of Debir. And as you were hearing it, you might have been like, wait, haven't we heard this before? 
Yes, in Joshua 15. Uh, it's basically taken almost verbatim from Joshua 15 and just plunked right here into Judges chapter 1. Caleb promises his daughter Aksa to whomever captures the beer, and then his, his nephew, Otniel, captures the beer and is given Aksa as wife. Uh, but then when they were told that, that Debir is Negev land, it's, it's not in the Negev itself, it's like the Negev because it has no water. So Aksa comes to her father and requests him to give her springs of water. And so he does. Now it's, it's, this little story gives us a, a, a snapshot into sort of gender relations in the period. You know, in one sense, you see a woman being given in marriage uh, to, as a, to a military hero. It's like, okay, that sounds great. But also you see a woman who is quite forward in her relations, and she's talking to her father and saying, hey, you know, you gave me this land, but this land has no water. What are you giving me this? In? So there's, it's not, a, it's not just meek, submissive woman who doesn't say anything. But something more is also going on here. Because... The book of Judges is all about how the people of Israel are becoming like the Canaanites. And at the, the end of the book, we'll hear about how Benjaminites from Gibeah will abuse and kill an Israelite woman and try to abuse and kill her husband in much the same way that the men of Sodom tried to do to Lot. But here in contrast, we see an example of covenant faithfulness and not surprisingly from one from Judah. Well, um, sort of from Judah, because, of course, Caleb and his family are Kenizzites. Kenizzites were named in Genesis 15 as one of the peoples who would be dispossessed by Abraham's descendants. And so Caleb and his family are these non-Israelites, these Gentiles, who have come in and are being joined to the people of God. Again, we keep seeing in these three opening vignettes each one is going to highlight non-Israelites who have been brought into the people of God, or in the first case, a non-Israelite who is being judged. Uh, but, and, and they're seen not just as second-class citizens, but as heroes of the faith. Caleb, Rahab, Ruth, Aksa, Otniel. I mean, Otniel will actually go on to become the first judge in chapter 3. And yes, that makes Otniel and Aksa first cousins. But according to the law in Leviticus 18, first cousins are not forbidden to marry, so that's not a big deal. But Otniel does reappear as the first judge, and he's connected with the faithful Judahites, of whom it was said that the Lord was with them. But while we're talking about famous Gentiles connected with Judah, Judah winds up with all of these famous Gentiles working together with them. Verses 16 and 17, we see, we see the battle for the Negev and we see the, the, the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, goes with the people of Judah. Now, cu curiously, some commentators see this as a negative feature. Oh, the Midianites were allowed to settle with Israel. But that misses the point of the text. Judah is being held up as the best example, not, not perfect, but the best example of covenant faithfulness in chapter 1. And also... This is simply the fulfillment of Moses' invitation in Numbers 10 when Moses invited his in-laws to travel with them to the promised land. To say, oh, this, they're allowing these foreigners to join them? No, actually, these, these were invited foreigners who had been invited to join themselves to the people of God. And they do. And they join Judah. And it's an honor 
to have the relatives of Moses, the great prophet, decide to cast their lot with Judah. And what's more, it's, it's also a fulfillment to God's promise to Hagar. And I, I know, I'm doing a lot of connections tonight. But, okay, think back, Abraham, Hagar, when Hagar gives birth to Ishmael, and God had had promised Hagar that Ishmael would dwell in the tents of his brethren. Because I mean, Ishmael was not the son of the promise. But Ishmael is not under God's curse. I mean, sometimes sometimes we, you, know, you, think, you think about, you know, Jacob have I loved and Esau I have hated. In the Jacob-Esau relationship, there is a sense in which Jacob receives the blessing and Esau is out. But with Isaac and Ishmael, Ishmael is by no means sort of deemed as sort of a someone who is to have nothing to do with God's people, because God said to Hagar, when God was, appeared as, as the one who who sees, the one who, uh, the Jehovah Jireh, the God who sees, God had promised her that her descendants, Ishmael's descendants, would dwell in the tents of his brethren. Well, these Midianites are are connected to the Ishmaelites, they're, they're, related, they're related tribes. And uh, so when the, many of these Midianites are joining with Moses and joining with Judah, this is the fulfillment of what God had promised to Hagar. So, um, so yeah, so you, you see Moses, Moses' father-in-law the, the, the coming, coming, with, uh, coming with Judah, and then Judah goes with Simeon, his brother, to defeat the Canaanites who inhabited Zephah. So as Simeon had gone with Judah, Judah is faithful to his promise and goes with his brother, and they take the, the territory of, of, of Simeon's inheritance. And then verse 18 tells us that Judah was so mighty that they captured Gaza and Ashkelon and Ekron. These are, are three of the, the, later will be three of the mighty cities of the Philistines in the lowland, uh, now, it appears that at this time, the Philistines haven't quite arrived yet. Uh, they're probably actually fighting on the coast and sort of working, because the, the, when you think about what's happening at the same time, the, they're, they're trying to take over the coastland area, fighting against Egypt, which it's actually curious to think about if Judah is coming in and fighting these, the Canaanites in this area, then the Philistines come in... Uh, right hard on their heels actually one of those ironies of history probably Israel uh, Judah's battles in the lowlands here probably prepared the ground for the Philistines to take over (laughs) because and so it's sort of like one of those interesting things that God is doing in history to prepare for what he will do later through through Samson and then through uh, Saul and through David but um because, I mean, there is, when it says that they captured these places, it's also clear that they don't, uh, they don't take possession. Because that's verse 19. The Lord was with Judah. He took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And particularly, uh, iron will be associated with the incoming Philistines. And so probably the author of Judges is sort of telescoping maybe as much as a hundred years of, of Judah's history and sort of like putting it all in one sort of small compass and, and giving you the basic picture of over this, over this whole period, what has Judah accomplished? 
They have, they've, they, their, their incursions into the lowland were initially successful, but they couldn't hold it. And then the Philistines came with their iron chariots. And so we are now pushed back into the hill country. Um, but the Lord was with Judah. And he took possession of the hill country. Um, and this is part of, part of what the author of Judges wants to show us. is It's not that Judah succeeded at everything. But the Lord was with Judah. And they won many great battles. And they accomplished, they accomplished much of what God had promised. Uh, and in chapter 3 we'll hear that God was testing his people to see if they would... Trust him in the midst of all this. And the, but the importance of God's presence with Judah, of God's blessing on Judah, is seen in the contrast that verse 21 makes with Benjamin. The people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem, so the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Now, it is curious. I mean, this, this is the one sentence about Benjamin. So it's entirely possible that Benjamin succeeded quite a bit in their other battles. But the author is focusing on, but notice that Benjamin failed at at this thing. And it's particularly insulting because Judah had previously captured the city and burnt it to the ground. But Benjamin can't even capture it at all. And again, this suggests that we're telescoping decades, if not centuries of warfare. Uh, The picture being that, that at one point, Judah, when they're first marching through, captures the city, burns it, doesn't have time to settle it, so they keep going. Jebusites come back, rebuild it, and then the, the Benjamin refuses or fails, fails to conquer the city and so lives contentedly side by side with the Jebusites. Now, again, if you remember Joshua 15, Joshua 15:63 has the exact same sentence but with one change. In Joshua 15, it says, the people of, Benjamin, of, of, of Judah did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem, so the Jebusites have lived in, with the people of Judah in Jerusalem to this day. Which, if you remember, Jerusalem is right on the border between Benjamin and Judah, so it looks like Judah, what was the, sort of initially had failed to, then they finally did succeed, but then they didn't have use for it, so then Benjamin came. So all of these statements can be equally true. It's just part of the reason why they're being put this way is to highlight for us that, that Benjamin, Benjamin's one task in the book, Benjamin fails at. Uh, if, if Judah is to be faulted for not conquering the lowlands, at least it cannot be said that they lived alongside the Canaanites. They... Uh, but that's where the people of Benjamin do. Now, well, while Judah isn't perfect, and the author's honest about that, Judah looks awfully good in comparison to the rest of Israel. And the, the second part of the chapter focuses on then Joseph. And it starts off, it, you know, it starts off well. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel, and tells the story of, of Luz, how it's, that was the former name of the city. And the spies see a man coming out of the city and they say to him, please show, show us the way into the city and we will deal kindly with you. So perhaps remembering the story of the spies from the book of Joshua. And so he shows them the way into the city and they strike the, edge of the, the, sword, the city with the edge of the sword. But they, and they let the men and his family go. 
And here's where the story falls apart. Because this is no Rahab. She does not, she, she had converted and joined the people of God. This guy goes back and builds up a new city of Luz and uh, in the land of the Hittites. So there may be a formal similarity with what the spies did for Rahab, but the difference is Rahab professed faith in the Lord and settled among the Israelites. Remember which tribe again? Oh, Judah, right, Judah. Hmm, interesting. But this man does not, and he remains in professed unbelief and rebellion. God destroyed my city, but I can rebuild it. So Joseph's apparent bright spot doesn't end well. And then it is all downhill from there. Manasseh, Ephraim, Zebulun, Asher, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of their territories, at best putting them to forced labor. The, the order is, is an interesting order. Uh, it pretty closely follows the ordering of the judges in the book. So Judah, Otniel is the judge from Judah, Ehud is the judge from Benjamin, Deborah is from Ephraim, Gideon from Manasseh, Tola from Issachar, Jephthah from Gilead, Elan from Zebulun, and Samson from Dan, which is pretty much the same order of the tribes listed here. It's also an order that is geographical from Judah in the south to Dan in the far north, although Dan wasn't in the far north yet. Dan was uh, in, in the coastal plain in between Judah and, and Ephraim. So the chapter ends, actually, with the worst case. Because in all the other cases, uh, these other tribes, they're going out, but they're not really finishing the job. Dan, you see it in all the other cases, it's Manasseh did not drive out, Ephraim did not drive out, Zebulun did not drive out, Asher did not drive out, Naphtali did not drive out. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back. They didn't even get started. They sort of, they get pushed back. The main, the main noun is not even Dan, but the Amorites. At least the other tribes are the dominant power in their region. Dan is pushed back. And it's not Dan, but the house of Joseph that subjects the Amorites to forced labor. And at the end of the book, we'll hear the story of Dan and how Dan wound up in the north. So, what do we see from all this? Well, the, the history of the people of God in the book of Judges takes us in a wearying pattern of salvation, rebellion, exile. Sort of, the, the, sort of this, this pattern of the book of Judges is going to be this cycle of decay and the, all, all sorts of, in all sorts of ways. And sometimes it's tempting to, to view the, the history of the church in the same way. Ah, the apostles followed Jesus, but then came medieval darkness. And the reformers followed Jesus, but then came modern darkness. Jesus does not encourage us to think this way. Jesus says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. And yes, there have been many apostasies. There have been many judgments that have fallen on the church because of our sin, sure. But really, nothing has actually happened like the bondage in Egypt or even the Babylonian captivity. In the death and resurrection of Jesus, he has defeated all of his and our enemies. 
there's a way in which as we go through the book of Judges, I'm, I'm going to suggest that we should read the book of Judges in the light of the book of Acts. All through the book of Judges, we are going to hear of the Spirit being poured out on a judge. And when the Spirit of God is poured out, what does the judge do? You, you, you could say, in the most literal way of saying, he, he, he goes out and starts cracking heads. But what's he actually doing? When the Spirit of God is poured out upon a judge, the kingdom of God comes. When the Spirit of God is poured out upon the apostles, all through the book of Acts, when, the, when you see the Spirit of God being poured out, what's the next thing people start doing? Well, they start cracking heads. Uh, <laughs> through the preaching of the gospel. It's through the, the sword of the Spirit that the, the, the word of God goes forth. What does the Holy Spirit do in the book of Acts? The kingdom of God comes because in the preaching of the gospel, people are saved and judgment falls. I mean, it's, judgment is not absent in the book of Acts. But if you think, actually, the more I've reflected on this, the more I've seen, really, Luke in his gospel and Acts is patterning it off of Joshua and Judges. Because in Joshua, we have the coming of, of the, 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 the Lord's anointed who brings his people into their inheritance. Because, and Jesus is our great Joshua who accomplishes the, uh, the coming of the kingdom. And then in, in the book of Acts, we hear about the story of the apostles who preached the kingdom, like the judges who sought to establish the kingdom in the Old Testament. And of course, the obvious difference between the Joshua Judges cycle and the Luke Acts cycle, the obvious difference is that uh, the first Joshua died and stayed dead after the death of Joshua. Whereas in the book, in the book of Acts, I told you in my former book, O Theophilus, what Jesus began to say and to do. Because the book of Acts is going to be what Jesus continues to say and to do. Our Joshua Died, yes, but has raised from the dead. Because he has raised from the dead, he is now sitting at the right hand of the Father. And therefore, as his kingdom goes forth, you see a, a, a very different narrative of these, you know, the judges in the, Old, in the Old Testament see this cycle downwards that just goes kaput at the end. Whereas the book of Acts, you see these, these spirit-filled judges, you see these spirit-filled preachers who go forth and you see the cycle going up because the, the exalted Jesus has filled them with his spirit to accomplish the coming of his kingdom because we have the king from Bethlehem who has been seated at the right hand of the Father and therefore his kingdom does come and we don't keep seeing this downward spiral that just keeps ending in death and misery. One of the, one of the most important lessons I learned in seminary was that the the manic depressive spirituality that I had learned growing up was wrong. <laughs> I learned growing up that, oh, the, you know, the Christian life is just this you know, ups and downs and ups and downs and ups and downs. Okay, in some respects, there's some truth to that. But I, I was taught to read Judges and sort, of, and, sort of, and to read Old Testament narrative. Oh, this is the cycle of the Christian life, ups and downs and ups and downs. And what I, what I learned from Dick Gaffin at seminary was that, no, no, no. In, in Jesus, there is, there is no downs. We are seated with him in the heavenlies. 
We are no longer who we once were. We are no longer in the cycles of the judges just <laughs> tossed back and forth. We have been seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. And oh no, my experience of that does not always keep up with reality. My experience of that has a lot of uh, parallels with the judges. My experience of that is not what it should be. But that doesn't change who Jesus is. And when you look at the history of the church, in some respects, oh, sure, you see, you see ups and downs in, the, in some sense of the term. But nothing like what we're going to see in Judges. Nothing like this complete and total, not back to Sodom and Gomorrah. Not back, I mean, this is not the story of Jesus. The story of Jesus is the, the triumph of the kingdom, that the king is now sitting at the right hand of the father. That's where... I mean, if, if, if I had been smart, I, I would have been the one picking 186 for, for singing, because the Philippians 2 the song that we often sing. But, I mean, that's because that is the, the story of where Judges is going when you get to the retelling of Judges in the book of Acts. But we'll hopefully see a lot of that as we keep going. Let's, let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that you have not left us in the book of Judges, that you have not left us in this cycle of, of backs and forths and ups and downs and, and when will things ever change. We thank you that you have seated Jesus at your right hand, that the King of kings and the Lord of lords is seated at your right hand, one who bears our humanity, one who shares our nature, is sitting at your right hand in glory who will lead us to do what is right in your eyes because he is your exalted son, the one who was with you in the beginning and the one who you have promised that you will bring us to that glorious day in the end when we will see you face to face. Lord, have mercy on us. And by your Holy Spirit, fill us and help us. May, may your Spirit work in us to, to, to change us and renew us and remake us after the image of him who sits at your right hand, that we might love you with a whole heart, that we might love one another, that we might walk before you in humility and holiness all our days, trusting that what you have begun in us, you will bring to completion. So Lord... Grant us eyes to see Jesus. Grant us ears to hear what he is saying. Grant us hearts that love you and love one another. And have, have mercy on us, Lord, in, in, the, in the coming week. And help us to remember these things. That in, in our work, in our school, in our, in our communities, in our homes, in each place where you put us, help us to keep, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. To deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to follow him. To trust that, that in all these situations, you know what you're doing. And you are using all these things to, to spread the kingdom of, of your beloved Son. So, Lord, in our, in our afflictions, in our suffering, help us to, to remember that you're using these things to conform us to the likeness of, of the one who shed his blood for us on the cross. And, and in, the, in, this, in the struggles that we face, help us to, to rejoice in you because you are bringing us through these afflictions to eternal glory. That these, these light momentary afflictions are, are, not, are not worthy of being compared with the surpassing glory that you have prepared for us in Jesus Christ. So help us to keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus, to remember what you have promised. And Lord, help us to encourage one another with these, in these things to, because we, we often lose sight and we, we lose heart and we don't see. And so Lord, help us to encourage one another, to remind one another, to to say, I need help when we need help, that we, might, that we might draw near to you together as your people, that trusting that you will continue 
the work that you have begun until the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.